Okay. So, that last little section where he starts to talk about the relationship um, that the leadership has to Egypt is what we're going to be talking about today. And we're just going to be talking about the first little um, poem or oracle, whatever you want to call it, that deals with this. So we're in chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Um, 28 through 39, really. Again, 36 through 39 are the historical playout of what's being discussed in the 28 through 35. But 28 through 39 is really this big section where God is establishing that He can be trusted to do what He said He would do in the first 27 chapters. That He will deal with the iniquity in the nation and He will bring about a, a renewed, I mean, the, the beautiful heavenly city. That is an actual reality. And, and this is, in some sense, God proving Himself by sovereignly acting over these nations and dealing with Israel and with Judah using Assyria and Babylon. So, chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Isaiah says, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Now, who's Ephraim? Israel. So, these are the northern ten tribes. Remember, if you have, if you have ten in the north and two in the south, the two in the south are Judah. And I believe one of the reasons that Paul can brag about being a Benjamite is Benjamin was the other tribe that stuck with the, the one from which the Messiah would come. But this is Israel. Um, this had on occasion good kings and bad kings. Israel is almost a, their capital city was Samaria, which has some scandalous um, associations with it in the New Testament, but they were always bad kings. You cannot, it is very difficult to find any glimmer of hope in um, the northern ten tribes. They are, after all, the um, created when Jeroboam rebels against Rehoboam um, right after Solomon's reign, and his first kind of um, duty as the new king to this newly formed nation in the north is to set up um, his own version of the temples uh, right across the border from Jerusalem and then another one way up top in Dan. And what better way to honor um, Yahweh, king of the Jews, than to set up a couple of golden calves and start worshiping. So this is, this is the start of the nation. And it nev like that's about as good as it gets. They are wicked from that point forward. And so when he starts out, he says, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. These, this, a lot of what Isaiah is going to say this morning is laced with sarcasm. He is, I mean, this is the mocking prophet that is, is putting words in people's mouths, is making fun of the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. So, in this brief, um, this brief little passage, he says, the kings, the leadership in Israel to the north are proud. And they party like nothing's wrong. 
Now, if you go to Isaiah's historical situation, this is within a generation of Assyria conquering Israel. Israel is a weak, useless kingdom on the national stage. They know nothing of the splendor they used to have. They, um, they, they never really had the splendor that the, that the United Kingdom had under David and Solomon. But they know nothing. That Their military is weak. They are losing territory on the fringes of their nation this whole time. You have foreign armies coming in, pushing in the borders. Eventually, they're going to fall. And the leadership is throwing parties and banquets. And Isaiah just says, such escapism is the actions of the proud who think that nothing can touch them. Behold, it says in verse 2, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. In effect, there is reason to worry. We'll find out who this one is later. Like a storm of mighty, overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, or Israel, will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley. Samaria is in a critical um, location in terms of trade routes. It's a, it's a place that was established as a capital city for a reason. It is a, an excellent point to um, conduct business from, to legislate, to the territory. It's, it's an excellent strategic spot. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. He says, the days are numbered for the nation, the ten tribes to the north. Um, now remember, Isaiah's not preaching to them. You wonder why he says this. This is not his audience. Um, much like last week, he's, he is prophesying against Moab. Moab never heard these prophecies. I mean, I would be shocked. Isaiah is speaking to the leadership in Jerusalem. So why prophesy against the nation of Israel? Um, a, I'll give you a couple of reasons. One, it's true. So he's just letting them know. Um, two, he's describing how God deals with such people, which will be important in a minute. And three, I think he's employing a teaching, preaching technique where you rally support before you drop the hammer. Um, this is where you have leading questions to almost build your credibility with someone before you bring the, the, the message that they're not going to like. Um, the, the, the Judeans, the, the leadership that he's speaking to, would be like, yeah, hate Israel. Hope God gets them. That is wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. Good job, God. Go get them. Um, but I think Isaiah is doing what my, one of my favorite preachers, William Willimon, he calls it in his preaching technique, the reason that he uses humor is because it disarms you so that you can hear the real message. And he'll describe it like this. He said, if I can tip their heads back in laughter, it exposes the throat so I can cut. <laughs> but this is what he does. And, he, and his sermons are masterful for you. Like, oh, yeah, that's, oh, that hurt, you know. Um, and I think Isaiah is doing something similar here. Not only is it true, not only is it exposing the character of God to the nation of Judah, I think that it is, um, in a sense, encouraging them to convict themselves. 
Because he's going to turn around and say, and you're guilty of the exact same thing. There is a glimmer of hope in 5 and 6. And the Judean leadership would have loved hearing this. In that day, the Lord of hosts, um, which is an important phrase, when you hear um, Lord of hosts, again, we look at, at the titles for God and we kind of just fly by them, but in a military context, to, to appeal to the Lord of hosts is, um, what's that Christian contemporary Christian song? The God of angel armies. That's what this is. It is appealing to the one who owns the military power of the universe will be a crown of glory. Compare that with the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. In that day, Yahweh of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Likely, um, Isaiah's audience would have identified themselves as such a remnant. After all, they were the faithful tribes. But Isaiah is crafty. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So there is something that God is going to do where he is going to replace this crown of shame that masquerades as glory and gives true glory to his remnant. And justice and strength will characterize his people. And the people of Judah, all right, Isaiah, finally a message we like. And then he, look at how he changes the reference. It's almost as if he's pointing, these also. Maybe referencing the, the leadership in Jerusalem. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. He tipped their chins back, now he's cutting the throat. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. He said it's, it's not only the leadership, it's also the religious leaders. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. He says you guys are quick to condemn them. And look at this mess. Then Isaiah mocks their, uh, their way of describing it. He, he clearly wasn't a popular prophet. Uh, and you had to assume that the religious leaders of his day had strong opinions of him, and they would have um, counter-messages against him. Now he characterizes their message in a way that, or he, he kind of quotes them. So this, is, this is him mocking their language. To whom will he, Isaiah, teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? They're calling into question the content of his message. Saying, who are you to teach us? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, he's saying, your message is maybe helpful for children, but there's no real depth to it. For it's, it is precept upon precept, upon precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Makes no sense to us, probably shouldn't. This is famously difficult to translate. What the, I think uh, the most consensus I can find is that verse 10 is, um, they are saying that Isaiah's preaching is like childish babble. The, here's the actual <laughs> Hebrew. It says, Tsav, Latsav, Sav, Latsav, Kav, Lakav, Kav, Lakav. 
which when I went and found out what that means, it is like meaningless syllables you would use to teach children the alphabet. A, B, C, D. It's kind of little sing-songy stuff you give to children so they can start to enunciate and learn how the, how the tongue works. And they're saying, yeah, that's kind of like you're preaching. Useless. Might sound okay. Really only helpful for the immature and the children. Who are you to speak to us? We are, after all, the educated elite here. Although Isaiah would have been educated and probably from an elite family. But verses 9 and 10 give us a picture of the leadership's view of his message. Fit only for children. Isaiah comments then in verse 11. This is fascinating. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to His people. Saying, Likewise, in something you cannot understand, the all-knowing God of the universe is about to act. You view my message as unintelligible and weak. Wait until armies come in whose language you don't understand. And then mock me again. To whom God has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. He gives clear instructions, Isaiah corrects them, and says, you wouldn't listen to those. And the word of the Lord will be to them, childish babble. I'll read it in the Hebrew. The word of the Lord will be to them, sav, lotsav, sav, lotsav, kav, lakav, kav, lakav, gibberish you won't even be able to understand the truth when you hear it. That's how much under judgment you will fall. It says, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Ha ha ha, the Lord is going to judge the northern ten tribes. Oh crap, He is going to destroy us for the same crimes. Totally blind to our own sin. Masterful in the way that he flips it on. And he says, in light of this, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. Scoffer is one of the most derogatory terms you could describe someone with. It is, it is, some, it is a term, it would be like calling someone a fool. Um, I have learned to become very careful to call things foolish, but not call people fools, because the Bible actually speaks very strongly that you don't do such things. That to rip someone's identity and replace it with, well, you are just a fool, is wicked. And Isaiah, <laughs> hear the word of the Lord, you fools, is basically what he's saying. But for people under judgment, probably not a bad term. Who rule this people in Jerusalem. Now, this is Isaiah is going to describe their arrangement they've made with Egypt, not in the terms they would use to describe it. They would say, We have, for um, prudent reasons, talked to this big army over here and made a strategic alliance. Of course, we have to protect the chosen people of God, and we believe that Israel's, or Egypt's got the, the means to help with this, and they have a, 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 a beef with Assyria as well. We're going to make a little alliance with these people. What could ever go wrong? Joining forces with Egypt. And Isaiah, Isaiah does a great job of 
rewording it for them. Um, back to William Willimon, one of my favorite things that he does as a, as a preacher is he says he will take things that are um, relatively secular and put re- religious language to it. So he won't let you parade assumptions as facts. When, when his faith is questioned, he'll ask for you to explain your position, and it might be, you know, scientism. They seldom call themselves that. but and a, a belief in the rational. And what he loves to do is he likes to say, okay, tell me who converted you to such a gospel. Whoa, this is not a gospel. I did not need to be converted. No, you did. You, like he'll put religious language on secular things and expose the fact that you were one to an ideology. You weren't convinced of facts. And there's, there's this incredibly helpful way of rewording things for people to expose that. Um, I, I was having a debate with someone last week and they were describing their frustration with a certain passage in, in the Scriptures and um, basically wanted me to kind of shut up about it. And that didn't work. But rather than just kind of go tit for tat with them, I just said, okay, well, tell me what other like, sections of the Lord's Holy Word you are okay with ignoring. Like, let me rephrase this so that you understand what you're doing. You want me to be sensitive to so-and-so by not reading this. Okay, that sounds well-intentioned and even loving. Tell me which of the Lord's inspired oracles you are okay with tearing out of my Bible. I'll tear them out right now. Tell me which ones. And when I reword it for them, they realize that how absurd it is. Isaiah does much the same thing here with the alliance with Egypt. They, they probably have all these practical reasons why this is a good idea. And he'll tell you, actually, you made an alliance with death. You are, you, you're now in bed with Sheol, with the place of the dead. Good job. Do you have something? You mentioned that about the scientism. I think that one of the questions we ought to ask is, is there any knowledge that you accept other than the microscope? Mm-hmm. Is there any other knowledge that you accept other than science? Is that it? Mm-hmm. So you can't prove history. I mean, you can't put it in a test tube and show it to us. Yep. And I think that that's a good question. Is there any other knowledge you accept other than what you believe about science. Which is, in itself, one of the most oppressive ways of thinking. If you, this is the only way that we can know anything. Okay, have fun living the rest of your life in the little box you just put around yourself. I mean, we're getting accused of it all the time right now by leaders, etc. And I think that it's a good question to ask. Mm-hmm. Do you accept any knowledge other than something that you can do your little scientific experiment for. Which, by definition, cannot discredit supernatural revelation. I find that fascinating. Can't do it. It can assume it's not a thing, but it's an untestable process. Therefore, science has nothing, no weight to bear on the supernatural um, side of things. Um, so, at that, at that point, it's helpful to draw the line and say, well, we'll both just stick to our belief systems. All the hate it when you call science a belief system. And I don't even think that science as a discipline is a belief system, but scientism, a blind faith in this as the only source of revelation, is a belief system by every definition of the word. I love um, scientists 
that can at least admit that. Then I'm like, okay, you're still wrong, but you're wrong with integrity. Like, I like that. So. Well, I mean, I think that we should love science and embrace it. That's I do too. But, but I think that to think that it's the only source of knowledge is, yeah. is kind of, you know, there, there's a problem there. Oh, yeah, I agree. So here's how, here's how Isaiah describes the covenant made with Egypt. Again, not how they would have described it, but this is his character, characterization of it. Because you have said, this is verse 15, we have made a covenant with death, <laughs> and with Sheol we have an agreement. Um, when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. Again, they would never say this, but he's explaining to them what they've done. And in falsehood, we have taken shelter. Now, if you trust a, an army like Egypt, if you believe that they will save you, if you really want to live uh, with lies informing how you, how you uh, enact you know, national policy, if you're okay with falsehoods, then I could understand why you would just spend your whole time drunk. We're good. Let me just ignore everything and just escape. But Isaiah says that, that that simply won't work. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Some serious New Testament imagery popping up there. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. That sounds glorious, but here comes the judgment. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Now, when I read that first part, waters will overwhelm the shelter, I immediately thought of Matthew 7. And you wonder if Jesus is pulling at this thread when he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount with this particular parable, or I don't know if it's actually if I'd call it a parable. Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You know, I've always read Matthew 7 as those who trust in Jesus will be protected from threats of this world. And if I lay Matthew 7 next to Isaiah 28, it actually might be those who trust in Jesus will be protected from the floodwaters of God's wrath. Because he says... In light of the justice and righteousness he will bring, hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm your shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. It says, not only is the alliance itself a mistake, it won't hold. Egypt will not protect you. This is where Isaiah's sovereign view of history 
serves its best purpose. He says, if Assyria is the Lord's arm of judgment, if for the south Babylon will be the Lord's arm of judgment, what in the world do you think Egypt can do about it? As powerful though they may be, chariot after chariot though they may have, Egypt cannot stop the Lord's judgment. In fact, even attempting to do so will probably make God's wrath worse. You will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through. By day and by night, it will be sheer terror to understand the message. He says, in effect, you wouldn't listen to the prophet Isaiah. You called his messages childish babble. Here's the childish babble you're now going to deal with. You will eventually hear this message and it is going to be through utter destruction because you have mocked the word of the Lord. And he says in verse 20, For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Come, brings to mind modern idiom, you've made your bed, now lie in it. He says, where you're looking for comfort, you're only going to find an uncomfortable bed that doesn't even fit you. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, He will be roused. Our tendency is to fly through that and say, okay, sounds cool. But if you stop, um, and if your Bible doesn't have um, references in it, no big deal. You can find them in like the, the Blue Letter Bible app or the um, version Bible app. But this is where a, a cautious reader will slow down and say, why those two places? What'd you, what's the significance of these places? Flip back with me. And this is in your handout, by the way, the references to 2 Samuel 5. I'm going to deal first with Mount Perizim. 2 Samuel 5, starting in verse 19. So this is um, David. I don't think... Yeah, this is right after Saul has died. So David, in verse 19, David inquired of Yahweh, Will, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And Yahweh said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perizim, the Mount Perizim, as it says in Isaiah. And David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. That reference wouldn't have been lost on Isaiah's hearers. God sovereignly fights on His own behalf and on the behalf of those who trust in Him. And He is unstoppable as a flood. Okay? What about the Valley of Gibeon? Go to Joshua 10. This will be earlier. Joshua 10, 10 through 14, I think. This is in the great account of the sun standing still. Watch the Lord take control um, of the battle. Verse 10 of Joshua 10, And the Lord threw them, that would be the, um, the enemy, threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow. 
at Gibeon and chased them away, chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven, almost like hail that will sweep away the refuge of lies. Threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there, was, were no, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day and when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Two subtle references where when we don't go back and read them, we miss the weight of what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, what I've said will take place because it's already happened. And the same God who did that against our enemies is now in His wrath and judgment because we've rebelled against Him, turning that same fury on us. In a sense, you are still loved and special, but you're not that special. You don't get to defy the God of the universe. The things that you have celebrated God doing against the, the pagan nations, if you will, when you reject His words... What are you if not a pagan nation? And you will receive just the same judgment. The Lord will rise up, verse 21, back in Isaiah 28, as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, He will be roused to do His deed. Strange is His deed and do His work. Alien is His work. Now, this is not... Punishment for the sake of punishment. This is covenantal discipline. This is covenant. It's important that we remember that. God is not bloodthirsty. He doesn't take any delight in the death of the wicked. But this is covenantal. This is, this is discipline of a parent to the child. This has to sting now for your betterment later. I have to restrict you somehow now so that you can live more freely later. This is covenantal discipline. Verse 22, now therefore do not scoff, there's that word again, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard the decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Probably no scarier line than that one, I have heard a decree of destruction from who? The one that commands the armies of the universe? Against who? Everybody. Okay, <laughs> we've messed up. Now he turns to a parable that says, let me tell you what it should look like and what it one day will look like. Rather than your intelligent leaders who scoff at my simple message and think it's just child's talk, let me tell you about a good farmer who just trusts God. Give ear, this is verse 23, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? No, is the implied answer. Does he continually open and harrow the gr his ground? No, is the implied answer. When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? The answer is yes, of course. For he is rightly instructed. Why? His God teaches him. 
He describes someone, and, and I love that it's an agricultural metaphor. You could say, okay, well, agricultural society, this will resonate, but more than anything, I think it might be describing this is the natural way things work. Okay, what does that look like? Hearing the instructions of the Lord and doing them. And there's even a subtle message that the violence that you must kind of inflict on the soil to turn it over is a temporary thing, but it produces fruit. And I wonder if that's an apt description to put at the end of a message of judgment. Say, now this is not forever. It's going to hurt for a long time, but it's not forever. And it's for the ultimate production of fruit. He finishes out the parable. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. I have no idea how you deal with cumin and dill. Probably right. Sounds good. If one of you knows, let me know. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. And then that lovely little tagline, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And the implied message is, and you should have listened. And we'll see as the book goes on, the implied message is, one day you will. Actually, you won't. You'll be dead. One day, the people of God will. Now, some of the things that we can take from this, um, those back sections on your page, um, what's in this for us? I need a clock in here. I wrote this. We aren't under military threat from an ancient powerhouse like Assyria, or for, in the case of Judah, Babylon. So this passage doesn't literally apply to us. However, there is much to learn about the disposition Isaiah calls for. He insists that God be trusted to deliver on his promises no matter how powerful worldly institutions may be. Easier said than done, but altogether natural for those living as citizens of heaven. It's important for us to remember that. And I, I, I cannot make it through a deep reading of one of these passages where the leadership is criticized without reflecting on this nation and the leadership. Now, I, don't need, I do not need a Christian nation. But like this makes me consider kind of things that, that rise to the top in terms of how a nation ought to be run. Here is a great um, quote I found. He says, Malcolm Muggeridge, I liked him immediately when I read his name, says, as Christians we know that here we have no continuing city that crowns roll in the dust and every earthly kingdom must sometimes flounder. Good thing to remember in a time like this. Whereas we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot dethrone as we are citizens of a city of God they did not build and cannot destroy. I would never preach isolationism or... um, abstaining from the political process at all, actually. If that's your conscience, go for it. I don't think that I have that kind of demand on other people, though. Um, But there is something that here that we root our hope in. A king men did not crown, and that men cannot dethrone. So, why this this particular chapter matters nearly 3,000 years later? If God saves, this is a great question for us to wrestle through, If God saves sinful humanity, what is our role to play in the matter? In the simplest terms, our part is clear to trust God with it. 
and some questions it's worth thinking through this week. It's worth reflecting on the ways God is calling us to surrender control, accept His answers, and submit to His timing. God wants His people to find refuge in Him, not in denial or pleasant falsehoods. And I loved this quote from Nietzsche because it describes, I think, our fickle hearts that will take emotions and experiences and even memories and run them counter to the truth of God's revelation. Nietzsche said this. He's quoting someone. I did this, says my memory. I cannot have done this, says my pride, remaining inexorable. Eventually, my memory yields. He says that the truth will eventually give way to foolish pride if you just entertain that long enough. Um, on Wednesday night, I got to, to teach through the last little bit of, um, of 1 Timothy 1. And one of the things that Paul calls Timothy to do is to keep in tandem a, uh, the good faith and a good conscience. And the implication being that when the conscience fails and you insist on your way in, in pride or foolishness or whatever that might be, when you insist on ignoring the truth, it, it won't be long before you don't even recognize it as truth. And, and so one of the ways that I've been describing this to people lately who struggle, um, I think inappropriately so, with their own holiness, I say... What you, um, the sins you'll hide today, you will soon tolerate, and the sins you soon, or you, you'll, you soon tolerate, you'll eventually condone. I just tell them, like, the fact that you are okay with keeping sin hidden and entertaining it as it runs contrary to the truth of the gospel, as God reveals it in Scripture, just tells me that if you stay on this path, eventually you're going to not believe this anymore. You'll believe your own prideful understanding of the universe. So, we must pray that such a refusal to trust God's truths be removed from our hearts. Um, this, this chapter, I'll end here, this chapter convinces me of the value of prayer evermore. Um, one of the great lines in, in uh, one, one commentary I was looking through said, in the church, the most ignored resource might be God. And I thought that was fascinating. We'll lean on the wisdom of the world. We'll lean on the Egypts of our time. And never consult the God of the universe. So how interesting. And then we can ask, are we good farmers? Are we sensitive to the things God has for us the things that he's telling us are we sensitive to his scriptures or I think kind of the very simplistic threefold way that God tends to speak through his word through his people and through his spirit are you hearing any of those things and that's a good question to ask and if you're not or if you are and God always agrees with you I would question whether or not you're hearing much accurately so, things to think through, things to pray through. Chapter 28 
paints the paradigm that the rest of this particular part of the book is going to follow. Um, that's all I got. I will pray and we'll be done. Or we can entertain questions since Anthony set the precedent. Okay, let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray first and foremost for eyes and ears that are sensitive to you. For an eagerness and a hunger for your involvement in our lives. And I pray that as we engage with you, that it won't always affirm, but that it will challenge and help us to grow and be transformed. Discipline us if necessary and make us disciplined to hear you and even when it sounds foolish and childish to heed your position as the great sovereign and to obey in all the faith we can muster but that you've truly given us as a gift. Thank you for these words and for providentially supplying them to your church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Now.